It's surprising in my surroundings. I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And let me tell you, I am so excited to talk about Four Sigmatic. I love this coffee so much. I actually had some about three hours ago. I love their individual packs. You just pour the powder into the cup, throw some boiling water in there. You're done. You're done. I actually drink it black because it's just so tasty. And normally I have a little bit of cream in my coffee, not with Four Sigmatic. This stuff is fantastic. You got the chaga with lion's mane. This coffee is not only, you know, provides that caffeine boost, which is why so many of us drink coffee. In addition to that, these things are just so good for you, right? You got the king of mushrooms. You're helping your immune system. It helps with focus. These things are not only beneficial. These are, these are not like new, brand new science. These are things that have been long known uh, in the mushroom world, and they're bringing it to you, and you're getting it in something you're already consuming. You're already having coffee. So why not go give it a try? Go to foursigmatic.com forward slash rambling runner. That's F-O-U-R-S-I-G-M-A-T-I-C.com forward slash rambling runner or use code rambling runner to save a few bucks at checkout today. Tanya Lurch in the house. I couldn't wait to talk to Tanya. She is absolutely fascinating. She was in that famous marshmallow test that Allie Feller and I talked about in our last Ramblings on the Run episode, but this episode is about much more than that. This person is an absolutely incredible interview. Uh, I kind of had goosebumps halfway through. I'm like, this person is so good at this. Uh, it was amazing to know um, that this was basically her first time doing this. She's a teacher, so I shouldn't be that surprised. She's used to public speaking, but still... I'll tell you what, you're going to love this episode. I know I certainly loved conducting this interview, and I have no doubt you will love it just as much as I did. So let's get into it with Tanya Lurch. Tanya, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. I'm so excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. You sent a really, for me, like an eye-catching DM. You actually was one of those group EM, group IMs or DMs. Was like, I am. So this, this is what happened. You and I were talking about college a second ago, and my brain just defaulted to IM, like, like a messenger, because oh, yeah. that was the thing when we were in college. So it we'll talk was. about that in a second. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, but you DM'd me and Allie, and you were like, hey, listen to the show. I was one of the marshmallow kids. Yeah, I'm from, a marshmallow baby. <laughs> no, if, you didn't, if someone didn't listen to Ramblings on the Run, um, this sounds like a really weird place to start off, but I couldn't wait to talk to you because this is such an interesting topic. It's something that I think about all the time, not only as a parent of two little kids who would potentially be in the age group for a survey like this, but also trying to project myself, like what would I have done and how would I have turned out, so on and so forth. So before we get into it, for those of the people, for those people who either didn't hear that episode or who need a refresher, what are we talking about when we say you're one of the marshmallow kids? So there was a really famous study, uh, psychology study on children's development. And they, back in 1972, Walter and Michelle had babies. They placed a marshmallow in front of them. And the experimenter, I think they were probably like three or four years old. And the experimenter said, I'm going to leave. And if I come back and the marshmallow is still there, you will get a second marshmallow and you can eat both of them. 
And then they left the room and the parents and the experimenter watched from behind a two-way mirror to see what the child did. And they took notes on the different strategies that the kids would use to distract themselves from the marshmallow. Some kids just ate it right away. Some kids had all sorts of strategies to, you know, keep the marshmallow in front of them till the guy got back. And then they followed these kids throughout their lives. Um, So this is in the 70s, right? So they're in their 40s, 50s. And throughout their careers and just to see how they did. And there have been a bunch of spinoff follow-up studies. So the one that I was a part of was when I was five years old. Yeah. And that was 1988? Yep. Yeah. So that was the the first follow-up study post the 1972 thing. And this is one of those studies that is referenced all the time in like real psychology work. And it's a huge one in like the bro science like psychology stuff. People who aren't necessarily like have a psychology background, but want to sound smart and they're like, Hey, you know, get X, Y, Z, they did this. And this is why you should buy my book or whatever. Um, but it's one of those really famous things that so many people not only are interested in because so many folks look at like just the pattern of like, Hey, I was like, this is a kid. And what, influences or what ingrained about me projects out to later on in life. So not only do we think that about ourselves, but as young parents, parents of young kids like you and I are, we also invariably start doing that same sort of calculus on our own kids. So there's like so many people who look at a study like that and they're like, oh, can I please take something from this? So first things first, after now, now that we know exactly how you fall into this, When did you become aware that you were part of something that, you know, a certain part of the population knew a lot about that you maybe didn't know anything about when you first signed on? So the first follow up, I was I think it was freshman year of college. And I, you know, before before texting and all of that, I had gotten a letter that was forwarded from my mom and it it was pretty nondescript. And it was like, you need to follow up with these experimenters. And at the time they were offering, I think 20 bucks to fill out a survey and mail it back. And in college, upstate New York, 20 bucks, that's, you know, that's like a night of drinking. And I was like, sure, I'm going to do this. So I filled out this whole questionnaire to ask for things like my SAT scores and what I was studying and, you know, all just all sorts of things. And I never thought about it again, got my 20 bucks, moved on. And then I I was actually a psych major as an undergrad too. So I had heard about this study, but didn't know the connection. And then when I was an adult living in New York City, I got contacted again. This time it was through email and it came directly to me because people can now stalk on the internet. This was not that long ago. And they were like, you need to come in. And uh, if you want to continue in this study, you've been part of this longitudinal study since you were a child. And come in and they had me do all sorts of things. And that one paid more because I was up in a lab for like two or three hours. And I was, I was super interested. I was like, can you tell me about this study? What can you tell me? And they couldn't tell me too much about what the current portion was, like why, what they were measuring and why they were having me do certain things. But they told me about the past and they said, the first iteration was when you were five, you had this marshmallow placed in front of you and we can see in your files what you did. And then they told me, and then we follow up to see how that affects school and uh, SAT achievement, standardized testing achievement was a big thing they were projecting out. Then they looked to see career paths. And um, the whole thing is about delayed gratification and, you know, how little kids can 
employ strategies to delay gratification and how that helps them reap bigger rewards in the future. So I thought it was super interesting, but very random. And I'm, I don't know. I don't know if they'll keep contacting me. I look forward to you know, getting a random email one day saying we need a follow-up. So we'll see. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And the more you think about it and dig into it, like just so many questions just start populating because you're like, okay, well, is this about like inborn, you know, basically not only delayed gratification, but willpower, right? You see videos of, of little kids doing this and like they're hysterical. They are absolutely hysterical. They're not just like looking at the marshmallow and deciding not to eat it and sitting there quietly. They're like spinning in their chair. They're like hiding their eyes. They're doing all sorts of wild things to try to get themselves not to do it. And some are just like, as soon as the door closes, they're putting that marshmallow in their mouth as fast as humanly possible. With that said, it's like, all right, is this an inborn thing? Is this things are, are kids who like were able to pick this up early on from their parents? Is it some sort of combination of the two? Is it like, Hey, that kid just didn't sleep well last night. So all of a sudden his decision-making process or her decision-making process has been altered. Like the more you dig in, you're like, how can you grab long lasting data from this? I guess one way of doing that is not only to make it longitudinal, but to do it with so many kids that some of these factors can just be smoothed over. But now as someone who studied psychology in college, you went to Hamilton, which you mentioned you went to upstate New York. I went to Vassar, which was in the same league, Go Liberty League, even oh, though you yeah. think you guys left. I think you guys left like a, a year after I graduated. But, yeah, we're part of the NASPAC League now. But, there but you I, go. See? Yeah, eight-hour car rides for life for you guys, you know, driving to Maine. Um, but now that you have, you know, somewhat of a background in psychology, now that's not your profession now, but now that you know what you know, what do you take from a study like this? And does it intrigue you not only from a personal level, but from a professional level? You know, I think with a lot of studies and I, I teach statistics, so I, I like looking at stats and and we talk a ton about experimental design and longitudinal studies are super cool. They're hard to track. And I, I'll admit when I got the second follow-up when I was in my late 20s, I was like, oh, am, I, am I part of the Truman Show? Like, are these people watching me? Where are they? You know, like it feels yes. very... Yes, someone who's a part of the... I'm in on the scheme. The answer is yeah. yes. I'm trying yeah, to let like, you know. Where Where is everybody? Um, but <laughs> what was funny is the 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 point of the study and what they've been trying to replicate is the first study found these huge correlations, obviously doesn't imply causation, but very strong relationships between the kids who were able to self-regulate and put off eating the marshmallow and their future success in careers, in athletics, and all sorts of things, um, the length of their marriages, really interesting stuff. The follow-up studies have not been able to replicate it to the same degree, but there still is a little bit of a correlation enough a, a slightly significant correlation where they can say they're, you know, it's statistically significant. They, there are these better outcomes. And what's funny is I, I think I was one of the ones who ate the marshmallow. Like the guy walked out of the room, the door was closed. All right, interview over, how- interview over <laughs> your failure in life. You're, this, this is not going to work. I failed. But what's funny <laughs> is, you know, I was thinking about this. You were talking about kids. I have a three-year-old and I, I want to do this with him to see what he does. And I think the point of it is the experimenters want people to hope that their kids or that they themselves could put off the gratification. But I have, I disagree. I don't know. I, I would go back and I'd eat the marshmallow still. If, if you have a marshmallow in front of you, you don't know what's going to happen to the experimenter. What if he doesn't come back? What if the other second marshmallow is stale and gross? Like you have a marshmallow in front of you, eat it because you don't know if you're going to get another one, right? 
And that, that to me is something that is really applicable now as an adult. So yeah, I ate it and I don't know, I'm, I don't know. I, I feel like a gen- generally successful human most days. So I would say so. I say you're you as <laughs> as this as this interview is going to show. You're doing a lot of really cool stuff. In addition, people who have kids know that it's never either or. The kid is thinking yes and like yes, I will have this marshmallow. In addition to that, I will nag you forever for that second marshmallow. Right. Right. Yeah, I don't know what my son would do. I'll report back, but I'm actually really curious to see where he would fall on this. What would you do if you if you knew? What do you think your kids would do? Oh, that's a good one. Um, I would say my son, my son who's five, would definitely eat it. My daughter, I think, would be one of those squirming kids because she would do these mental gymnastics of like she's just she has negotiated every single thing in her life since age two. Wow. Everything like it is on some level, it's amazing to witness on another level. It's exhausting to experience. <laughs> and um, with that being said, I think for her, it would be watching the mental gymnastics, like which one should I do here? And what, how can I expand the pie with my words? Yeah. Uh, so I don't know my, my son definitely would eat it. My daughter, it wouldn't be, she wouldn't not eat it because of the idea of, okay, this one to one correlation between, you know, trying to have this delayed gratification. It'd be much more of like, do I think this person would submit to my request to have the other one, even if I eat this one? Yeah, yeah. Where that's- I, think that's, I think that's where her mind would go immediately. It would not be a matter of like, what's better, having something now or having something later? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I, I runners, you know, as a runner, you think about all the days. Right now, we're in the middle of a heat wave, and it is my, you know, my Garmin has been telling me I'm unproductive for five days. Like, I feel just junky, and I don't need to be running. I don't need, there's no race, there's nothing in particular, but we keep getting out there because you think about what's reaping those benefits in the future. And so, part of me feels like that is completely at odds as to what I did as a kid. So, I, I do think that the, you know, nature versus nurture, I think the nurture aspect plays a much stronger role. So, maybe you're not inherently great at self regulating, but along the way, you learn strategies and you, your interests might gear you towards certain activities that where you are, you know? So, I don't know how much it matters as a little kid, but. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, if, if, if I'm going to, if I'm going to be like N, N equals one of like an anecdotal study, it would show that, you know, delayed gratification is completely inborn. Cause I feel like I'm better at it by 0% since I was five years old. <laughs> like I have not improved this skill at all in the last 34 years. I, I should tell your wife to do something similar, not with the marshmallow. Cause that would be too obvious, but to do something similar and see what you do. And then later be like, Oh, actually that was just our version of our home version of the experiment. I, you know what, this could, this could be happening already because I, I always submit. And if I don't, it's because I'll then just circle back and get it later. Like, it's never like, Oh, I didn't have to eat the marshmallow. And that story. It's like, no, and I came back and got it later. I figured out where it was. Uh, and that's that's usually my relationship with desserts. Let's get a rambling runner poll going. Let's have what if we have a bunch of listeners, like anyone who hears this who has kids, try it with their little kids with a marshmallow or whatever it is, some treat that they like, and then and vote and tell you whether their kid ate it or not. I'd be so curious to see. 
Yeah, I agree. And instead of like having some sort of pressure on it, like, all right, now my kid is preordained to do X, Y, Z because of what just happened. And because of that, I will now coach them on how to do it correctly. Um, I just want the I just want the funny videos. Like I just want like yeah. the Jimmy like the Jimmy Fallon Halloween <laughs> like oh dad ate all the candy type videos uh-huh. of like them squirming and what do I do now and then like overthinking it and all that stuff. Let's do it. I'm in. Anyone else? Right, join right. us. <laughs> we got we got to figure this out. All right. So this podcast is going to come out on Friday. We're recording this what Wednesday the nineteenth. This will come out on the twenty first. We get we can make this work next week. We can definitely make this okay. work, and I can definitely you know videotape my kids on some level. I think trying to make this happen. Um, I'm not going to need much video time. I think I can definitely do my son doing it too. <laughs> So you're an expert. You can like really set it up. You can get like the, you get, you get like really set up with like exactly how you saw it done in the first place. I don't, you know, it's funny. I don't remember because you, your memories, even oh, yeah, at five, like, I know it's, not, it's like you did it again when you were 18, you were just went in there for, for an no. interview or whatever. Yeah. I only remember the videos that I saw, you know, just studying the study in college though. You know, most of our, I feel like so many of my memories as a kid, I'm like, do I actually remember that? Or was that just a photograph that my mom showed me? You know, like, I'm like, was that real? So, uh, I know what it looked like in the videos that of the experimenters doing in it, doing it. So we can recreate that. Yeah, for sure. All right. So despite the fact that you failed the marshmallow test, things have worked out fairly well for you, uh, in the subsequent X number of years. So, one of those things is that you have become an unbelievable runner, Tanya. So you're now a 308 marathoner. You've run quite a few marathons in total. Most people who run at that pace have a long history of running uh, and, you know, have done it for a number of years, high school, college, or um, are just really, really gifted uh, to really pick it up and, and make a name for it. We talked earlier about how you attended Hamilton um, and its proximity to where I went to school. And, you know, I played played basketball at Hamilton every single year when I was in college and things like that. And, you know, I'm familiar with that athletic conference. Did you happen to run collegiately or what is kind of the formation of your early stages of your running career? Oh, hell no. No, I hated running growing up. I played lacrosse in high school and I was on the diving team. Where did you go to high school? Yeah, I grew up in Westchester County. I went to Mamaroneck High School. Okay. That's outside New York City. Oh, I've been to Mamaroneck High School so many times when I worked in admissions. I can picture it now. I can picture like, you know, that avenue. Um, I've, I've been on, I literally, I have recorded a podcast for a for the prop I, I recorded a podcast one time when i was doing um fundraising from um the parking lot if you pass Maranek high school it's on your left you drive north and then you get to i think it's about a mile and a half away and then you get to the water before you take a yep. left where it where it we could bear left to go Maranek ave or you stay to the right to keep going on one um right there in the parking lot along the water i recorded a podcast there a number of years ago I, that was where every, every weekend my dad and I would go on a bike ride and we would stop there and have a little picnic and bike back home. Um, I, you know, it's funny as an adult to look back on where you grew up and everyone complains about where they live when they're teenagers. But I look back now and I'm like, wow, that was a really, really lovely community. I had great friends and it was a really nice town. I, my high school was great. It it was, I can see the appeal of living and growing up there. So yeah, I played sports, but not, you know, I wasn't great. I played lacrosse. I was decent. Um, definitely not breaking any records. And 
I was on the diving team and I, at Hamilton, did dive on the diving team my freshman year. Um, wasn't great either. We had the, we had to do the three meter, which was the high dive as part of our competitions. And I hadn't done that before. I'd only done the regular springboard and uh, it, it's terrifying. Just throwing yourself off that. If you mess up, you get the, it hurts so much if you land badly. So I, I tried really hard my freshman year, but it, I wasn't great at it. I was really interested in the social scene and the swimming, swimming and diving team was just very, very serious. So um, didn't continue with that. I was on the dance team. Um, just I was a dance double major. So dance was something I was into. And I you know, was on the dance team. It was super fun, but definitely not a runner at all. And after college, I moved to New York City. I was working in advertising. And my mom, who was formerly a professor at Princeton University, brilliant linguist, she taught French and Spanish. She started, uh, she started to get sick and lose her ability to speak and make much sense. And it turned out she had a rare form of Parkinson's that was very rapidly deteriorating. And she you know, while, while this was going on, my, my parents are separated and I'm an only child. So a lot of her care fell on me and I was living in the city and she was in her apartment in Westchester. And, uh, you know, I was 21 and just at, at the advertising scene, there's a lot of partying that happens. I was drinking at lunches with clients. We were going to concerts and shows and all sorts of things. And I was, you know, I was super unhealthy. I I had been a dancer, so I was drinking and not eating a lot and just not in a great place. And my mom was slowly dying and I was trying to process it, I guess, um, not well. And, you know, in terms of keeping in shape, I would go to the gym and do the elliptical and read an Us Weekly magazine just to, you know, stay in shape, I guess, but I hated it. It was boring. And, it was purely aesthetic. I was like, oh, I just want to, you know, want to still not, you know, I don't want to get gain a ton of weight after college. And then one day I was on the bus and there was one of those billboard posters on top for team and training. And it just showed these people and it said, you know, run your first marathon, raise money for, for leuke- lymphoma leukemia. And while that's not the disease my mom had, at the time, the Parkinson's foundations were not, they didn't have anything like team and training. And something about it just, I was like, let me go check it out. So I went to an info session and all these people talked about their experience training for marathons and they weren't runners or some of them were runners, but I was, I was blown away. And I don't, I don't know what encouraged me to do. I was just like, I'm signing up, I'm doing it. And I was terrible, like a really not good runner. It was every run was hard for me. I remember the first time I completed six miles without stopping. And it was such a big deal. Um, It was really hard. And that was that was really how I got started. I was a pure beginner. I knew nothing about the sport, nothing about distance running. And all of my runs, whether it was a long run or when we would do workouts, like everything was a, around a 10 minute pace, like 10 to 11 minute pace. That was, that was just, I didn't know that people had different paces. That was just the pace I ran. Now that is a, you know, specifically around the athletic piece. This is a story that often is told from people who have, you know, kind of gotten traditionally have been in shape because of an activity they were doing, not necessarily because they wanted to get in shape. So for you, like, as a dancer, you were active. 
So it wasn't like you were exercising to stay in shape. Like you were just, you were doing your activity, which then just led to a healthy life, which then once that ends, then you're like, all right, like, yeah, I know what I need to do to stay in shape, but this is different. Now I'm just like, I'm just slaving away on the bike over here for like, or for your, in your case, like the elliptical, like, but there's no, there's no end here. I mean, this isn't a means to an end. This isn't an activity. This is just like something I need to do in order to, to feel this other way. So, you know, again, first of all, I'm so sorry to hear about your mom. Um, and that, and I can see, you know, why that would be such a motivating factor for you. So going back to the team and training piece, what about that specifically allowed you to get over that hurdle of like, I know I should work out, but type feeling to like, okay, this is something that is, you know, an active part of my life that I don't have to like rationalize my way through. Yeah, there were, there were two things. The first is, you know, and I, I know that this is not a unique or interesting story by any means, but I had a horrible relationship with food in particular through my college years and a lot of, you know, physical activity and eating to me was aesthetic based. And I, you know, I was on the elliptical because I wanted to be a certain size and I ate healthy because I wanted to be a certain size. And when I started running, suddenly it was like, well, I need to eat to fuel my running. Like if I don't eat properly, I'm not going to feel good. So that was for the first time, it was, I had a new kind of way of looking at what I was doing in my day-to-day life. I didn't have the knowledge. Like I didn't know a ton about nutrition. I didn't know a lot about fueling running. So I definitely wasn't fueling properly by any means, but at least the motivation to do things was um, was much more positive, right? It wasn't about an aesthetic. I wanted to be able to get to that finish line. I wanted to be able to do this big goal. Um, I also, it you know, having my mom be sick and I had again, like the, my job and just my social life, like there was so, so many temptations, so many things going on. And I just knew that it it wasn't really great or healthy for me. I had adopted a dog, I, a little pug named Ollie. And, uh, that kind of kept me like I would come home, make sure I could walk him, that sort of thing. But this added another layer of independence and maturity where I, you know, if I'm getting up to meet this team, at 7am to go for a long run, which may have been only six miles at the time, but it was a huge, that was very scary for me. I was like, well, I got to go to bed early and I can't drink before I go to bed. And, you know, I got to hydrate. And so that started happening. And there was practices like Tuesdays and Thursdays, they would meet, we would meet at, I think it's 7pm in Central Park to do these kind of mini workouts. So same thing, I couldn't go out with my work buddies because I had practice. So it just kind of started shaping my life and nudging me into a healthier lifestyle. And I also was really, like I said, it, it didn't come easy to me. So I think had running come super easy to me, I might not have been that interested, but I saw all these people around me who were flying by me in the park and just like running all these paces that literally were impossible for me. And I was like, well, I want to keep trying to get better. So I kept trying to do the best I could in these practices and just giving as much of myself as I could. And there wasn't really anything else in my life that was that motivating like that. Like my work, I wasn't that motivated to sell ad space, but I was motivated to try to get to that finish line and raise this money. And, and then I also made a bunch of really great friends. So I was excited to hang out with them. That's exactly where I was going next, because the space that you're talking about, the marketing space in New York 
that can be, you know, not necessarily in terms of the job itself, but in terms of after work hours can be a really fun and exciting thing. Like he can almost be mm-hmm. like a professional, a professional step in terms of like the social scene, right? It's not a whole lot different than basically an ur- it's basically an urban step, I should say, in terms of the social scene from where you were at Hamilton. Um, it's not a whole lot different. You're in New York. You're, you know, this is again, pretty close to where you grew up. I can see that being a lot of fun. And by taking these steps, you really took yourself out of that scene. So what was that like in terms of a social perspective? Because that must not have been that easy because I think that's part of the allure to go to New York City when you're young is to experience that kind of lifestyle. And all of a sudden you were very consciously opting out of it. Yeah, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't fully opting out. I was, I was still doing some of the lunch things. And again, I wasn't, you know, with team and training, I, we were running, I was definitely doing their beginner plan. I was maybe like three to four days a week. And so it was the Saturday nights were definitely curtailed, but I, you know, I was still doing my job and doing the things I had to do, but it just, it seemed less appealing as it did. I think the combination of my mom dying and, or slowly deteriorating and watching that happen, as well as having this other interest, I just, it wasn't as exciting to me. I didn't, I didn't really enjoy it as much. It, like you said, it that's it's a great industry. You meet a ton of people. I have really fun, cool stories. I will never be able to afford the seats at the concerts and the games that I got to go in as an assistant and the trips we got to go on. So a really cool way to get to know New York City after, um, but just didn't feel very sustainable to me. I was I felt always tired and run down, and so I you know my my actual closest friends in my life are my my college friends and some of my high school friends and a lot of them are in New York uh some of them are still there and I would still see them and a lot, most of them are not runners at all so my actual friends that were not were separated from running and work um those friendships were very strong and still are but I started to make a bunch of new friendships some of which are lifelong friends to this day and that was all through the running scene and and just kind of I met my husband running so it was just, there was a lot of, it just kind of opened my eyes. Like I didn't know my way around Central Park. I didn't know how big it was. But once I started running, I started to know all these cool corners of Central Park and the West Side Highway and, you know, running across the bridges. So it just opened up New York and the scene and everything about it in a whole new way. How was it potentially beneficial for you uh, from a mental health perspective, not only in terms of your relationship with food that you described earlier, but with with the condition that your mother was in and what she was going through and what it put on you as an only child who all of a sudden was, you know, putting in, you know, put in a very, um, you know, basically like a role reversal. All of a sudden you're taking care of her instead of her taking care of you. What role did running play in your ability to handle all of these new things going on in your life? It, you know, it, it just gave me something else. Like I feel like when, when things are tough, you know, you, it's very easy to focus wholeheartedly on them. And it just gave me something else. Like I, my mom was, it was awful. It was on my mind all the time, but for however long it was like, if you're pushing really hard in an interval, you kind of forget all these other things happening. The noise disappears and it, what do you think about when you're in the middle of running a really hard 800 or a mile repeat, right? Like you're breathing and you're trying to think about your form and just trying to get to the next landmark. So something about grinding like that just forces your brain to 
turn off all the other things. And that was really therapeutic for me because I'm, I'm a head person, you know, I'm super type A and I can lie awake at night with all sorts of things running through my head, but to, to have that space to turn it off. And it, it feels that way to me now as well. So it was I, from, I, I don't know where my mental health would be had I not found running and some of the friends I found then too, you know, you, you talk a lot on easy runs and I just, I got to hear all sorts of other stories and what other people were up to and just helps put things into perspective, helps you work things out. So after the team training experience, what were some of the primary factors why you decided to continue with running? Because here you are, you're a 308 marathoner. I mean, you are an unbelievable runner. And you mentioned before that running didn't come easy to you. Um, you know, you know, you're one of those people that other runners look at and say, I will never be as fast as that person, right? The experience that you first had while you were in Central Park. So what were some of the things that influenced you to continue running past that first entree into the sport? First, you're super nice. I thank you. I you're definitely inflating my uh, running capability. No way, man! I, and a three weight marathoner is insane. Like, that is really, really good. I'm definitely proud of my improvement for sure. And I, you know, but I still feel like I have a long way to go. And if anyone ever says to me, "I can't run like you do," I'm like, "Yes, you can. Like, come on a run with me." And that's one of my favorite things with some of my high school students and some. And friends that I've made, I'm like, let's go running. And yeah, so I that first marathon, I ran 438. I ended up in the hospital on an IV because I took Advil every, you know, eight miles because my hip was bothering me. And oh I did not gosh. know that. Yeah, I didn't know. Um, and at the time, you know, I was, I would run, you know, the long run on the weekend with the team and these two workouts and maybe one other day. But, you know, when you're running like 25 miles a week and you're, long run is 18 miles. Like that's not a very sustainable, like it was, my body was breaking down because I didn't have the base at all. I wasn't a runner before. So I, you know, my hip was hurting. I was taking all this Advil. I ended up in the hospital with dehydration because nothing was staying down. And, um, you know, I recovered from that. And for whatever reason, us marathoners were like, I want to do it again. So I, I signed up again and I wanted to do New York City really badly. I wanted my dad and my friends to be, I wanted to run through the city. And I tried two years in a row and I, I kept getting injured. Um, I have really horrible dancer feet bunions, like really bad. Um, they look very scary. And I, I've had many doctors tell me like, you definitely can't run. You can't do impact. But I have a great sports podiatrist and shout out Dan Geller. And he helped make me special orthotics. And so I was like, I'm going to keep trying. And so I, I finally was able to complete the New York City Marathon. I think it was in 2009. And I ran that in 425. So an improvement for sure. But again, didn't know much about training. And then I remember bumping into a friend who I knew from my team and training days, and she had run a half marathon in Central Park at, at like an eight minute pace. And to me, an eight minute pace at the time was outrageous. Like there's no, like I said, most of my running runs were marathons and basically 10 minute pace, right? That, that's what minute, you were yeah. used to. But I was also like, if I jumped into a four mile race, I was also running that at a 10 minute pace. Like I didn't understand the concept of different efforts. It was just, that was just what I ran. I didn't, I didn't know that there was different zones and different speeds. So I bumped into this friend who I used to run with and I'm like, Oh my gosh, how'd you get so fast? And she was like, you know, I, I started going to these 
workouts with a a local team called UA, Urban Athletics, uh, you should come. So I started going to those. And that's actually where I met my husband. He's a very accomplished sub-elite runner. He's run you know, 235 in the marathon and 110 in the half, just super fast. And so he was part of the, the men's group. And All right. Just I, for the record, can I just say, yeah. he is to men's runners exactly what you are to women's marathoners. Like you are at the exact same level in terms of like percentage away from receiving an OTQ in the marathon. Like you are at the exact same level. Is that true? Because in my head, he is like it. I mean, I'm like, he is the runner in the family. He's, but... He is 19 minutes and 30 seconds from an OTQ. I love and you, know you are 24 minutes. So considering the overall time, you're like the exact percent difference away. I'm going to go tell him this after. That's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, at the time, I mean, he like he he and a couple of our friends are now close friends who were just this group of guys training in New York. And um, this was, you know, 2011-ish. So this was before the New York City club scene has become what it is today. It is, I mean, it is cool what's going on now. It has erupted. But at the time there was, you know, there was Central Park Track Club, there was UA, there was there was a, a couple of different ones, but Greater New York, but it was not what it is today. And so I started going to these workouts Tuesdays and Thursday nights and, um, you know, kind of seeing all these guys trying to ex- impress my husband a little bit, who was not my husband at the time. And um, and I, I ran the wine glass marathon in 2011. And this was, I was not following any formal coaching plan. I just was going to these workouts twice a week and kind of doing some easy runs and a long run. And I ran 332 and qualified for, at the time, Boston was 335. And I remember everyone being super excited and like that it was such a big deal. And I, you know, I knew about Boston and I knew what the times were. And I remember going into that race and I had, again, no idea what I was capable of. I was like, I'm just going to run as fast as I can. And it was pouring that day. It was like freezing. And I, I qualified for Boston and was very excited. And that was sort of when I started to be like, huh, okay, this is cool. Like I'm improving. And I feel stronger. You know, my easy runs didn't feel super taxing every time. Like sometimes they felt really relaxing and I started, you know, knew about different paces. So I then, you know, started to get more into it and got, there was a, another group, there was a, another coach in New York that I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to, I want to run another marathon. Like, let's see how much faster I can get. And that coach and that group really, really pushed me. I mean, these people were doing like workouts twice a week of 10, 12 miles plus a long run. And so I actually ran CIM that year. That was 2012. And that was the year I ran 308. But what was interesting about that year was it monsooned. It was, it wasn't cold like Boston a couple of years ago, but it was the same torrential I mean 30 mile per hour winds, the start, the water was up to her ankles. And I, I remember I, like I had worked, I've never worked harder for a marathon that year. That was, that was when I really kind of started to take myself more seriously as a runner. My husband and I, he's also a teacher. So we spent our summer that right before that fall racing season, he was racing Chicago and I was going to do CIM. We spent 10 weeks in Hawaii, which is something he had done for a couple of years. And he would just, you know, rent out his New York apartment, go to Hawaii, train for marathons and enjoy life while everyone else was working and he'd come back to teach again in the fall. So I went with him that year and we, you know, I was running 
probably like 60 miles a week, maybe got up to 70. Like I really, I was like, thought, you know, he was running a hundred miles a week. So I was working super hard and uh, I didn't, I thought that I could get close to 305. But then when the weather forecast came, I, everyone was like, don't go, don't do it, pick a different race. And at that point I was like, it's the end of the season. Like, I'm just going to go for it. And our plan had been, he was going to meet me halfway. And my only goal was to just get to him at halfway. And if it was too horrible in the weather to just drop out and the water again, I, I mean, I ran with a poncho on up until the halfway point. Oh I, Oh yeah. Like garbage bags. I was covered in a garbage bag. I had, um, I had plastic bags on my shoes in the corrals and I tore them off like a mile in because the, there was, the water was up to our ankles. The pictures are bananas. And I, I couldn't even see my, I couldn't look up at my watch. And I remember the 305 pace group guy. I just, again, like, I think if the weather had been perfect, I would have maybe messed it up by getting in my head. But because it was so horrible, I was just like, I'm going to stick with this group and just tuck in and hope to see my husband halfway and drop out. And I remember the pacer looked at me and he was like, you realize this is the 305 pace group, right? And I was like, yes. And he was like, is that what you're trying to run? I was like, I mean, I, I, I trained to do that. I hope so. And I was just, I remember being terrified and I just, I tucked in with this group. And when I got to my husband halfway, he was like, sweetie, you, I think you just PR'd in the half marathon. Like we got to keep going. You're doing great. And I didn't even know what my time was. I was way ahead of pace. Again, don't follow Pacer because they got us way off pace. So I think I came through the half at like 129. And, and so I just, he paced me, he jumped in and he helped me the rest of the way. And it actually stopped raining and I, you know, huge positive split and really struggled at the end. And, but I remember coming in at 308 and it was not that far off my goal time. And, you know, I think from that point, that was when I was like, all right, like, I think I can get better at this. Right. And I, I did, I mean, I, I, I got greedy. I, I have not improved on that. A lot of stuff happened along the way, but that that season between the 332 that year and the 308 was really when I was like realized that I I maybe could get better. And I think anybody can get better. I'm not I'm not special specially gifted athletically. Like I'm a hard worker for sure, but uh but yeah, that just kind of came together then and that's that's when I started to realize it was more than just something that I was doing, you know, like a 438 marathon. It's so funny to me that it took till after that race for you to come to that realization, because I would like as someone, especially someone who's type A, I would thought that you would be like so hyper aware of your progress, like long before you, you know, beat your first marathon time by literally an hour and a half um, that like you were able to dig to not only run a 308, but to do so in such crazy weather conditions. Um that it would have been like so obvious to you. So what, what do you think about that buildup caused you to maybe not be um, completely in tune with like just how fast that you were getting? Yeah, I was, I think part of it. And I, you know, people say this all the time, run with other people. I, you know, I would see, cause the, the, tra- the training runs I would go to there, they would split us into pace groups and I would look at the the women and the men who were in the faster pace groups, and oh, I was like, I can't, I can't run with them. But I always, like I said, like I'm, my issue has never been hard work or motivation. Like you tell me to do something, I'm going to do my best to do it. And my issue has always been injuries and 
you know, not knowing really what I was doing and just trying really hard and getting hurt. And so I was, I was giving my all and I would see myself like, oh, I'm actually catching that person or I, now I'm consistently catching that person. It wasn't just a fluke thing. And I, you know, I'm not, I don't race a ton at the time. I didn't, I, I did a half that, uh, probably like a month and a half before I ran 132. And that's actually my PR that stands in the half. I just, I haven't raced a half since after injuries and babies. And, um, I've participated in halves, but I've never, I haven't since gone out and been like, I'm going to race this to try to break that PR. But the 132 definitely doesn't indicate that I'm capable of a 308 or a 305, which at the time was my goal. But I remember I was, I was running with people who had run 305, 306. Uh, I was hanging with them in these longer runs. And so that to me, I was like, well, if she can do it, then I'm going to try to do it. And I, th- I honestly think if I had perfect weather that day, the way my mentality was about running, um, I would have overthought everything. And I, I'm pretty sure I wouldn't have done it. I think the fact that I just had to blindly just go and not look at my, I couldn't look at my watch. Cause if you looked up, the rain would poke you in the eyes. And I think I was just, you know, huddled with these guys and then just relied on hanging on to my husband. And then at the end, I just, I was like, I just want to get to the hotel. We were staying at the Hyatt at the finish line. And I remember just being like, just get to the hotel. So I, I think had it been everything lined up with the weather and I, I don't think I would have done as well. Um, my attitude towards running now is completely different. But at the time, I that, you know I had really worked very, very hard on that. And I knew that, right? Like I knew how hard I worked all summer in Hawaii. It was humid. Then while teaching, I was putting in a lot of miles. Um, so I wanted it, but it, it was really hard to replicate after, as you can tell. <laughs> And now what is it like for you now that you've had, you've had two kids, you got a real little one bumping around um, and you obviously still have a love for running. So what's it like for you now, instead of before you were this, like you, it almost, you, you portray this marathon experience as like this really fun and happy accident of a PR, uh, not PR, but like, like this amazing time. Um, and now here you are on the other side of it. Like, all right, I know what I'm capable of and I know what I'm, probably capable of even more than that. Um, but now you have these, you know, extraneous factors that are happening in your life and not to say those are extraneous factors, but you have these other things that are going on in your life that pull you away from, you know, hobbies and other things that you would like to do. So what's your approach now with running? Yeah. Well, I mean, in between that time, I, I got greedy. I was like, I'm going to break three hours on my neck. You know, I went every marathon I'm improving, like clearly the next step is sub three. And I got injured and that was that I ran that Boston. Um, that was the year of the bombs in 2013. And I, I ran in the pool and on the alter G for that, for most of that training cycle. Cause I had a stress fracture in my foot. And I think I ran on land like twice before that race ran that marathon. Um, I think I ran in the three twenties. So it was still a relatively good marathon, but I was clearly did not breaking three hours. It was a very, very hard race. The bombs happened. Then I, you know, had qualified again for the next year. And so I was like, all right, I'm, you know, next year, Boston and same thing. I, I got injured and I just like, it was not, I was trying and I was trying to replicate it. And those high mileage, like that wasn't working. And so I did run Boston the next year, but on no training. And I, my, my husband and his, uh, our good friend, Jay Holder, who now is over at the Atlanta track club, but he used of to be course, the producer. Jay Holder's a legend. Yeah. His wife married us. They're a really good friend of ours. And Jay ran the whole thing with a fanny pack with my husband. The two of them ran like 
high-fiving people. And I was actually starting in a wave ahead of them based on my qualifying time. And they were just doing it for fun because that year was incredible. Like 2014 was just with the blue and yellow scarves. It was just an experience. And they caught me because I was, I mean, I don't, I think I ran like 350 something. I was, I hadn't, I had not run on land. I was just like, I got to participate because this is a special year. So, uh, you know, we finished together and it was a, it was a blast, but I was very much hurting and like nowhere near the shape I had once been in. And I just, I spent the next few years just really like, I kept trying to recapture that and it wasn't working. And I, I didn't have a coach. I, I mean, I was still running with the team and, but I, I had no guidance. And it, again, like kept banging my head against that wall and doing the same thing. And eventually we, you know, we decided to move to California. I was pregnant, um, had my son. And after he was born, I, you know, I didn't, I didn't really have friends out here in California. I didn't have a running group. So all my running was with him in the stroller. And I, I hopped into a half marathon, I think probably about a year after he was born. And I ran like 144, which was great. And I was, I was at the time was like, great, this is, you know, I, I will never get back to 308 shape. I, and that's cool. Like I'm a mom now and I'm, that's okay. Like I don't need the pressure. Right. And I, I really hadn't given it much thought. And then, um, 2000, 2018. So he was, a little older than one, my, my, one of my best friends from New York was like, I'm going to do CIM. Like you should do it with me. And I was like, yeah, I'll come cheer. And then I was like, you know what, maybe I'll run it for just for fun, just to like do a marathon after having a baby to prove to myself, I still could. And so I started training that July, this was 2018. And I knew I didn't have the time to put in very high mileage. I also had never strength trained before. So I was like, well, my, my hip, my body was a mess, right? Like things were not in the right place after my having a kid. So I started to strength train, nothing crazy, just three days a week. I was doing, you know, 30 minutes of abs and core and then like leg stuff, some plyometrics, just kind of stringing stuff together and not running high mileage at all. But I, I did get in touch with, I did get introduced through a parent of a student um, to some women who were running who I would see running and I started joining them for track workouts. And some of these women are, I mean, just amazing. And what's cool is a lot of them are masters runners. Some of them were like, yeah, they didn't start running till they were in their late thirties, like older than I was at the time and were, had achieved times that were way faster than I ever had. So to me, I'm like, Oh my gosh. And then I started getting into podcasts and listening to your podcast in particular and listening to all of these people who have tons of kids and work and do all these crazy things and also have the time to continuously improve. And they're not in their 20s. They were in their 30s, like me or 40s or older. And so as that season progressed, like I remember September, October rolling around, my goal at CIM went for like, just finish it for fun to yeah, maybe try to qualify for Boston again, which was 3.30. And then I don't know, as we got closer and closer, I just, my fitness started coming back together. And it, like I said, the, the pressure was off. I don't, I think I peaked at like 45 miles a week. I was not doing crazy mileage at all. Um, and it was super fun because I was running with people. I had, I was making friends for the first time in California. Like we had been here almost, we had been here a year and a half, but I was pregnant and teaching. And so I hadn't met people. So it just, it became something that I was looking forward to. And I was just, I don't know. I just kind of, I went in open-ended, no goal. Like I, there was no time goal. I just wanted to see what I could do. And 
the friend that I ran with, she's a 253 marathoner, but she was coming off injury. So for the first time in our lives, we were pretty much running the same paces in our workout. So we decided to run together, which was for me like a once in a lifetime because I was like, I'm never going to be able to run a whole marathon with her again. She's so much faster than me. But we ran together the whole time and we ran 313. And that it was, the, I felt amazing and it was so fun and it was so rewarding. And that really to me was when I was like, all right, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. Like I can fit this into having a family and having a job and I don't have to put in tons of mileage and maybe I'm not done, right? There are so many cool stories of women out there who have more kids than me and, you know, have been at it less time than I have and are still improving. So that's kind of where I am now where I'm like, I just, I just want to see how good I can get. Yeah. I mean, that's really exciting. Not only because I think you can be really, really good, but it's so exciting to you how you're constantly putting yourself in a position where the people who are influencing you as a runner are, you know, people that you can aspire to be like. And it's just so interesting that, you know, this whole, you know, social effect that yeah, people can create in and around themselves can be so, um, I guess such, such a strong can be have such a strong effect on someone's performance. And I know, um, this has been displayed so many times and, you know, Matt Fitzgerald, um, uh, has written about this countless times, some of his works and people listen to this show, I'm sure they listened to or read his books before. And it's so interesting because so many of us, you know, myself included will be like, well, do I really need to be in a run group? Like, I don't really have time for it. I work out times that don't work out well for that. And, do I want to take time away from other things that I'm doing or time with my family to kind of shoehorn this into my schedule? And then I hear this story and I'm like, God, I got to find some people to run with because obviously this works really well. And it can be um, not only motivational and aspirational, but just running with fast people can just subconsciously have an effect. It, I, I really, I, I don't, I can't run with people as often as I used to before kids. We, you know, my, my deal with my husband was if we are going to have a second kid, I need to get a Peloton treadmill. And so I, I do a lot of my runs and workouts on there. And I, I mean, that also is motivational. There's like the leaderboard and stuff. So I, you know, I do some of that. Those are those fun classes are my workouts uh, I try to meet up with friends, but like you said, it it's super hard, especially if a lot of the local teams meet at night when uh, when it's bedtime and after work, and I that's not going to work for me. So I run super early, and there are definitely people who will meet me, but it might require driving thirty minutes out of the way there and back. So sometimes it's just it isn't possible to put that time in. But I think just having those touch points where you're talking to people and you're like, all right, well, like, what workout are you doing? Or what do you want to do? And then you kind of do something similar um, really helps. And yeah, I don't know, I, I wish I could run with people more um, than I do. I would run with people every day. But most of my running is alone. But I always am in contact with other people who have either similar goals or are, you know, just kind of in a similar mindset. All right. Hard pivot. You're a teacher. Uh, you are doing really, really exciting things with some of your high school students at Sage Hill, which is a school in Orange County, California. And in fact, it just, you know, as someone who's married to a teacher and kind of this kind of this this uh, lifestyle and this community has kind of like inculcated itself within my life just because of you know who I live with and and the conversations that I have in and around that. But what you're doing with some of your students is so interesting with Sage Hill Prosthetics. 
first of all, I would want to give you like the one, give, give us the one minute elevator pitch about what that is. And more importantly, because so many people who listen to this show have kids who are about to go to school and we're all going to be navigating a really strange situation where as little as we know now, we know that everything is going to continue to change and evolve and sometimes evolve rapidly. So after the elevator pitch of what, what exactly that is, how are you handling the uncertainty around your profession and your interaction with your students? Ooh, so many hard questions. All right. Well, the elevator pitch is easy because I love this program. Um, so I started this program at my school. Uh, I had started it at my old school in New York and brought it here. And we basically, it's a, it's a class that I teach. It's introduction to 3D design and CAD software, as well as 3D printing. And we are we also do a service learning project as part of that, where we make prosthetic hands and arms for people in need and they're free. And we, uh, we work through the Enable Foundation, which is a foundation, a nonprofit where people who need hands and arms can, uh, you know, put in a request and get matched with people. So yeah, we, I operate a chapter out of Orange County and we get a lot of local recipients, which is awesome. And they come in and a lot of them are kids. So we make them really fun, customized, colorful hands and arms. That is just absolutely amazing. If someone lives in your area and wants or just, you know, not wants to learn more, but has, you know, a, a child in their life who could benefit from one of these, what, 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 how do they, geez Louise, I can spit this out. I know I can spit out. What do they do next? How do they learn more? Yeah. So we, we can make hands and arms for people all over. We made last year uh, a hand for a guy in Pakistan, one in China, like we can ship all over. So if you are interested, definitely uh, check out the Enable Foundation. We'll put links in the show notes. Um, our The website for my program specifically is Sage Prosthetics. And uh, just there's a contact form in there. Shoot it over. We can't... There's spe- specifics with certain... Um, certain types of hands and arm deformities that we are not able to 3D print for. And again, these are not professional grade by any means. So if you have access to a prostheticist and a medical grade prosthetic, that's amazing. We do not do that at all. These are, um, these are we, we call them tools and toys to help with daily things, for especially for people who can't afford a regular prosthetic or for kids who don't qualify for them because they will continuously outgrow them. So it's a really cool option and we'll we'll put those links in and they can check out the website and see some of the work we've done before to see if it's similar to, you know, what what they have going on in their kid or on themselves. All right. So let's talk about the school year. It's right around the corner. Yeah. What's it like for you having to prepare not only for what you know now, but what may come down the pike tomorrow, the next day, or the week after that? Yeah, it's so I teach, as we mentioned, this 3D design, 3D printing class, and I also teach AP statistics. So I mainly deal with high school juniors and seniors, which makes it a little easier because my students are much more adept with technology and they can be independent and manage their own schoolwork in Zoom. I think the hardest age group right now is the kindergarten through sixth grade because those kids need more guidance and it's a lot harder for them to be on the computer and do these things and they they really need that in-person time. So um, I, I'm torn. I personally am happy to be starting the year in California right now. We're required to be distance learning 
because our county is on the watch list. And so I'm, I'm happy because I feel safe at home. And uh, my baby is two, she's six months and she is considered high risk because babies under one right now are showing higher, um, higher critical illness coming from COVID. So we're not sending her to daycare. My amazing father-in-law is driving out from Michigan on right now as we speak to help us when classes get started. And for me, the way I've been prepping this summer is I'm just, I'm preparing everything as if we are going to be virtual and I'm going to treat the times where we are able to be in person as bonuses. And I'm, I'm flipping all my classes. So everything that I do um, for all the, all the things the kids will do for homework will be basically these short 15 to 20 minute videos with embedded interactions and questions. And then the actual live Zoom time will be where we have discussions and work through problems. So I'm never going to be teaching on Zoom like a brand new topic because I think that's very boring and very hard to stay focused. Um, so that's that's my plan. We'll see how it goes. I have not done this. I was on maternity leave in the spring when all my colleagues were doing this. I'm very excited about my material, especially for statistics. I mean, everywhere you look right now with the election and with COVID and with social justice, there is so much data and there is a lot of bad data and great data and ways of interpreting it. So I'm fully, I mean, I've taught this course for 10 years and I'm fully revamping it and it is all new and current information, which I think is going to make the class really interesting. So I don't know. My I, I don't have a ton of advice as a parent. I don't, you know, my three-year-old, I want him to be in preschool. I want him to be with his friends. I'm nervous about it. We're waiting to hear if his school is going to be allowed to open. My husband teaches fifth grade. They're waiting. So I think there's so much uncertainty. I think the the best thing for my mind is to just assume that it's virtual for a very long time. Make that the best experience you can. If your kids are younger and they're not into this, they, that's okay. Like falling behind is relative. I hear that term a lot. A lot of people are worried that their kids are falling behind. Falling behind from who? Everybody is in this together. So, you know, there's there's pods popping up, which terrifies me from an equity standpoint. There's all sorts of alternatives. Uh, homeschooling, there's so many different options that I've seen people exploring. And if those things are working for you, that's amazing and pursue them. And that's so great. I, I know for me that we don't have the bandwidth to homeschool and teach and work and do all these things. So I say, you know, do the best you can. Everybody's in it together. The kids are going to grow and be okay. I feel strongly about that. This is going to shape them. It's going to shape our entire generation. Um, it's it's gonna. I, I don't know what the year is gonna look like, right? Nobody does, but you prepare for the worst, and hopefully, we're all pleasantly surprised that things go back to normal um, more quickly than we anticipate. But that is my plan for the year. <laughs> Tanya, this was such a fun conversation. I'm so glad you reached out with the marshmallow DM. It was so. <laughs> this was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Matt. Thank you for having me. This was a blast. Tanya, thank you so much for coming on the show. Also, big shout outs to Prevenex and Four Sigmatic. Health is so important. And for so much of us, health is not simply a matter of you know exercising as much as we can, trying to de-stress, trying to have some sort of sense of self, but also getting those supplements and little added bonuses that can be so helpful like Four Sigmatic and Prevenex. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day and happy running. 
This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest of states these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.